Good evening, everyone. Um, really good to be with you again, and I'm so excited to be talking tonight to Matt Errett, uh, someone that I've been following for a little while now, and I thoroughly recommend that everyone go and listen to his interviews um, and conversations and read his articles. At the end, we'll We'll ask Matt to give you his websites, etc. He's the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review, senior fellow at the American University in Moscow. He is the author of the Untold History of Canada book series and Clash of the Two Americas. In 2019, he co-founded the Montreal-based Rising Tide Foundation, and you've also published the book, The Time Has Come for Canada to Join the New Silk Road. Hopefully we can cover a little bit of that in, in the talk. Um, and three volumes of the untold history of Canada. Matt, welcome. Hey, it's a, a great pleasure to be with you, Vanessa. Thank you for having me. I've been actually really looking forward to this because I've been watching all your um, latest interviews and sort of highlighting to myself the, the various subjects that I wanted to cover with you, and I hope we've got enough time. But if not, uh, I hope that you'll come back on to carry right. on. <laughs> um, Matt, the first question, that I, because I, what I wanted to do um, tonight is to try and put forward an alternative perspective to some of the more entrenched uh, analysis that is... That is uh, on view at the moment about what is happening in Ukraine, why Russia went in, um, what are what is Putin's agenda and what is Russia's agenda, what is how does that tie in with America and China and the EU and the UK, etc. But the yeah. first question that I kind of wanted to cover, because again, this is something that people bring up all the time when they're trying to understand what's going on, is why now? Why now, just as COVID was kind of, the COVID project was tailing off, it was being exposed heavily um, for, for the project that it is uh, and where it's leading to, etc. You had the, um, <clears throat> the freedom, the trucker freedom convoy, particularly in Canada, of course, but that spread across the world. And then suddenly Russia invades Ukraine. At least that's how, how people are seeing it. It's like, why now? Why, after eight years of war against Donetsk and Lugansk, why now did Putin suddenly decide to recognize their sovereignty and suddenly decide, um, very rapidly it appeared, to, uh, to lead a military operation into Ukraine? Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a wonderful question to start with, and it's, it's a multifaceted question, obviously, as well. Um, I, I think that um, part of this, for context, is important to get into the mind of, let's say, a, a typical high-level geostrategist. I'm glad you did has, that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I fumble on a lot of the, uh, the multisyllabic uh, words. Um, that's going to continue. Um <laughs> Just to get, just to, to be vicarious about it, right? And mm -hmm. to realize that here we are, we're at the end of a system. This is not a surprise. Um, even before COVID was sprung onto the world, um, starting, I would say with the event 201, uh, in September of 2019, even before that, you had the month prior, uh, the head, the former head of the Bank of England, Mervyn King had warned that the world was sitting on the edge of a financial Armageddon. Um, anybody in a position who's been looking at what has, what has been holding our Western neoliberal rules-based economic order together, um, has been very much aware that it, the, the question was not when or if it was going to explode or disintegrate, but rather when and upon whose conditions and what terms would that disintegration happen and what would be replaced, come online to replace it. Um, obviously, this is not something that just appeared either in the last five or six years. The the thing that Mervyn King and other uh, financial analysts on both sides of the uh, the aisle have been looking at is the fact that we have lost increasingly our physical economic base for the past 50 years. The West has been induced to self-atrophy, our, our productive uh, industrial force, our infrastructure. All of this has been hollowed out. We've stopped maintaining or improving those basic things that hard and soft infrastructure is something we live in. And instead, people have been induced to just focus on the growth of monetary, the, the financial side of the economy. 
by increasingly getting induced into believing that speculation, casino gambling is the way you get value. So that is something which might have seemed like it worked for a period. We've been sort of cannibalizing uh, off of what was what was built between the 1940s, 50s, 60s and into the 70s. We, we, we've sort of been utilizing those things that previous generations had created for us. Um, and just sort of coasting. And now the bubble is so large. I mean, I think global derivatives, uh, outstanding contracts sitting upon unpayable outstanding debts of a variety of, na- of sorts are well over 10 times the world GDP, probably 20 times. It's difficult to calculate. And it's a bubble. It's the bubble of all bubbles. Um, the race has been now for the past, I would say, since especially Xi Jinping came online uh, or openly called for the creation of the Belt and Road Initiative as a foundation for a new type of economic security paradigm back in 2013, there's been a race over what the the terms and conditions of the new operating system were going to be. Um, Everyone has known that it was going to blow. And I think that COVID was sort of sprung on us partially to consolidate power. Um, You know, there's, there are certain things, pesky pesky things if you're an oligarch like democratic institutions that do empower the people to participate in policy um these are things that had to be removed as much as possible while a central control as much as possible was created to steer this uh this ship through the coming storm so part of that was was to do this there might have been other depopulation elements or population control elements to that as well we i don't necessarily want to talk about that at this moment um but the other thing is that the um the chinese the russians increasingly the iranians in many countries i think there's 140 who are uh, 140 nations who have signed on to varying degrees with the belt and road initiative uh have all decided that they don't want to sacrifice themselves in a system that they don't really they will have no participation in they will be if anything reduced to a slave depopulated status under this great reset type of ideology um, and I think when you look at why now, like why did Putin decide at this moment to conduct his military operation in Ukraine for the denazification, demilitarization of the Ukrainian uh, forces? I mean, there's, there's so many points to, to treat, but I think one place, I'm assuming that your viewers already have a good understanding that Ukraine is not a sovereign country, that it was, uh, it suffered a regime change orchestrated by Victoria Newland and other uh, figures from the Western intelligence agencies in 2014 who utilized various uh, paramilitary groups like the Azovs who were empowered uh, to conduct atrocities, um, very much similar to how Zbigniew Brzezinski empowered uh, radical uh, sects of, of uh, Islam in uh, radical madrasas uh, in the early 80s to... Uh, to carry out jihad against, uh, well, <laughs> everything. Um, and, uh, and it's very similar as a technique, except this time it, it has been Nazis that have been, uh, part of a international, uh, intelligence apparatus since World War II that were never, uh, rehabilitated after World War II. These are second, third generation Nazis, um, who believe that the, the true bad guy in World War II was Stalin, not Hitler. And a lot of effort has been put into maintaining a narrative for each generation. Victoria Newland, uh, Christia Freeland, just being a couple of these, uh, people who had suffered, you know, uh, they'd been through families that had suffered in the past, um, under various abuses under Russia and a long time ago. We're talking here like pre, uh, Soviet Russia in the case of Newland's family, at least. And, uh, and they are sort of just indoctrinated to want to, uh, destroy to uh, to destroy Russia, and there, we can go in depth into that psychologically. But this is what was sprung onto the world in 2014 to overturn a pro a Russian or a, a Ukrainian government under Yanukovych that had certain pro Russian inclinations to at least uh, not want to integrate Ukraine into the dying uh, European Union and instead cooperate more uh, robustly with the Eurasian Economic Union led by Russia. And he was overturned, and it's been now eight years of uh, tension buildup of 14,000 deaths um, around East Ukraine from those Russian-speaking um, and people who identify as Russian mostly um, in Lugansk and uh, Donetsk, as well as Crimea, 
um, who have suffered immensely. And so Newland was at a certain point, I think it was in October of last year, she was deployed to uh, Moscow to meet with Lavrov, where she laid out certain threats. Um, what those are in detail, I don't know, but she left. She was basically told to take a hike. <laughs> it didn't go well. <laughs> she burnt a lot of diplomatic bridges. And very shortly thereafter, um, it was arranged that even though Zelensky, who is nominally Jewish, he's a, 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 a sort of puppet character from a, whose career has been, you know, managed mostly by this uh, Russian or this Ukrainian billionaire, um, Igor Kulomoskoy, who also runs the major TV channels, but is also a big uh, financier behind the Azov Battalion that was created in 2014. The the this is the, the battalion that's full of a lot of these uh, pro-Nazi groups. Um, he was induced to assign as an, a special advisor to the head of the Ukrainian military, Dmitry Yarosh, who is a leading right sector Azov figure, um, a leading Nazi, to head the Ukrainian or be the special advisor to the Ukrainian military. Um, and there's been a lot of evidence, especially in the, in the past weeks, that has come to the surface, which Russian intelligence had apparently uh, pre-access to, that there was going to be an attack, a violent attack and assault, uh, led by Kiev on East Ukraine, as well as on Crimea. They even had medals printed out. Uh, the Russians have recently stumbled upon a, a, a trove of these uh, medals that were intended to be given out by Kiev to the various members of, of different militias, to the, to the heroes of Ukraine for having recaptured Crimea and taken pictures of all of these hundreds of medals. Um, so there was something that was intended as a bloodbath. Um, so I think Russia, they tried very hard. Putin gave many opportunities for the West to abide by the red line. Uh, condition starting in d December of uh, last year, just simply saying, let us just sign an agreement, make it official that Ukraine will abide by uh, Minsk two, that we will that they will not integrate into NATO or host missiles uh, pointed at Russia, which is exactly what every country has been induced to do, who has been part of the the, the you know former Soviet Warsaw Pact space. They've all been forced to be not only absorbed into NATO but host. U.S. controlled, uh, nominally anti-ballistic missiles, but easily convertible into an attack, uh, an offensive, uh, missile force. And, uh, they just refused. And not only that, but uh, Zelensky even went uh, to Zurich in uh, February 19th and he called on in that speech for Ukraine's right to reacquire nuclear, uh, missiles, nuclear weapons. And that was just, uh, completely unbearable. So I think that, uh, Russia wanted to stay in, in control of the situation. Um, which is what has happened now because of their, their choosing now to intervene rather than letting the, the bloodbath occur. And, uh, I think they're very serious, uh, regarding not just denazifying, but also, uh, dealing with the, the issue of biolabs. Over 30 of them controlled by the Pentagon, the Department of Defense have been, uh, admitted even by defense officials of the West that do exist after they, they had been denied for a long time. <laughs> um, and there, there is a, a serious attempt to try to um, steer, I think, the multipolar system that Russia is a leading member of into a dominant position um, coming in the context of this breakdown of the financial system of the West. Yeah, and I, I think also wasn't it um, written into the Ukrainian constitution that they would eventually join NATO and the EU? I, I was reading something about this the other day. So that yep. was also, um, you know, <laughs> um, a, th a threat to uh, Russia in the sense that, that were they to join NATO, of course, then, then that would um, officially mean that NATO was on their doorstep with the potential of being right on their borders. Most certainly, yeah. yeah. And you look, look at Poland right there, their defense, the, the Minister of Defense of Poland is not even allowed past the lobby of the uh the nato run ballistic missile uh shield or the the uh the the military base that runs the missile shield uh in poland mm. so it's understood that these are are not real sovereign nations at this point in the game they they have to win back the right to be considered sovereign nation states but currently they're they're puppet regimes yeah and i i, I see I, I can't remember who it was who wrote that but i found it um, very interesting they said that basically poland is uh, playing the same role 
for Ukraine that Turkey or, or in Ukraine as Turkey played in Syria, which is, is kind of interesting. Um, hmm. So that means Poland is ferrying the weapons in, the, the arms, etc., etc. So it's playing very much the, the kind of um, the supporter of the war against Russia <clears throat> and the, the reinforcement of the uh, armed groups, of course, inside Ukraine, which, of course, are now being joined by the terrorist groups from inside Syria, including ISIS, according to um, reports that are coming out today, actually. Um, the other question, I think, that, that leads on from, from here is that along with some people perceiving that this war, I, I, I don't want to say that it's staged, but that it has been managed, it has been introduced at this point in in the history of the the entire sort of oligarchy, transnational oligarchy power grab in the world today to further enforce um, the 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 starvation, the poverty, um, the restriction on foodstuffs, etc., in particularly in Europe, and that Putin is playing a part in this entire uh, agenda. Which, I, I mean, I find, one I find this quite difficult because what I see from my research is the majority of the sort of the Davos WEF um, COVID um, projects are Western centric anyway. But I'd like to get into this whole idea that, that there's some kind of unified transnational oligarchical cabal um, mm. and there is no differentiation. There's no national differentiation anymore. That's what I'm, I'm really struggling with on this narrative. I'm not entirely ruling out, but I just want to, to look at an alternative analysis on this. And I know that you've been sort of um, very strong in putting forward um, an alternative perspective. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yes, I, um, I've encountered that quite a bit, and mm. it's understandable where this comes from. Um, I, I disagree that there is this one that everybody is, is just in on it, and they're <laughs> all equally controlled by the Klaus Schwab zombies uh, to get this predetermined outcome. I, I, the, my immediate reason why I, I would immediately, uh, find that, uh, unlikely, if not impossible, is the simple fact, and this people might think that I'm oversimplifying, but if that's the case and all parts are equally controlled, um, as part of this game, then why are we still alive? Why have they waited decades? It's not like this idea of turning society into a global feudal technocratic uh, system is a brand new idea. It's been around for a very long time. So why didn't it already achieve its desires? That's just one immediate thing. We can go mm. deeper. I mean, um, the thing I think that is also useful to hold in mind is that those around the Great Reset Davos type of golden color crowd have been utilizing certain computer models to justify the idea that the world can only sustain about a billion or so people according to the models and according to the data inputs of those models um, that they've been utilizing since especially the Club of Rome uh, was brought online in 1968, which was the thing that funded Limits to Growth uh, program, you know, from MIT. Mm -hmm. um, this became sort of the Bible for the newly reorganized global environmental organizations, which instead of protecting um, or fighting for the defense of nature conservation became more utilized as tools to justify um, undermining human infrastructure or protecting nature from nations wishing to improve their lot by investing in infrastructure, which the argument could always be maintained. Well, when you build major, you know, when you develop your economy in certain ways physically, it disrupts certain supposed equilibriums within ecosystems. That happens. Um, the computer models that they've been utilizing have been asserting that no, we have, we are just like any other species of rabbit or monkey. And just like other species, our, our population must be expected to adapt to certain fixed constraints of ecosystems. Um, now this completely disregards the fact that the human mind, unlike, you know, rabbits, which will tend to behave very similarly today as the rabbits did 10,000 years ago, same thing for monkeys or, or beavers, you know, they'll make dams, but the dam, 
<laughs> the ingenuity behind the creation of the dam is not different from from what we see as evidence of dams built by beavers 5,000 years ago. Uh, human beings are a creature of a metaphysical quality, which is very, I would say, impossible to chart on a linear binary computer model, mm-hmm. um, which these control freaks, freaks wish to do. So we can improve the quality of our dams, right? We can make discoveries and inventions by being creative and leaping outside of those types of linear modes of thinking. And when we do that well, and we share those ideas, uh, those discoveries with our our fellow men and women, we can uh, increase the quality of our life. And we can also improve nature. We can green deserts like Gaddafi was trying to do with his great man-made water project, right? Um, 5,000 years ago or so, I've seen that there's evidence that the, the Sahara was a blossoming lush ecosystem today for some reason i don't know why that most much of that fresh water is under the sahara and Gaddafi was a he had engineers working with him and scientists that realized that they could simply channel some of that bring it to the surface and increase food production and also biodiversity immensely by doing this well so that was obviously done away with after nato bombed them back to the stone age um, so there's this quality, right? Of, of the human mind is capable when it's, when it's treated with love and we have a, a, a system of natural law online where economic systems, uh, treat, uh, place value in the proper place instead of having us just worship money or something. Um, we are able to overcome or transcend those limits to growth by improvements of these qualitative sorts. And we can have more people. We can have a higher quality of life. All of these things, which if you're a, a social engineer, a technocrat who's committed to, to computer model thinking um, in your ivory tower, this is deplorable to you. It's, it's, a, it's seen almost as a threat to your existence. The thing with, with Europe, yes, Europe is targeted as much of the transatlantic, every member of the transatlantic uh, cage, in many ways you could see it as a cage of, of this NATO sphere, this five eyes sphere of control. They're targeted for uh, a large reduction in living standards and ability mm-hmm. to support their people under this um, Great Reset. For those who don't know, the Great Reset it simply attempts to combine the uh, dual emergency of the pandemic with global warming into one unified uh, grand strategy to completely reorganize, tr- transform human behavior on a, ma- on a macro scale. Um, part of that involves the reduction of carbon dioxide emissions. Primarily, this is a function of agro-industrial activity, which itself is tied to supporting life. Um, things like fossil fuels, natural gas, uh, coal, also things like nuclear power are seen as forbidden in that doctrine because these are things which ultimately allow for individual nation states to have access to heavy industry that is required to support uh, many, many lives. There's 8 billion of us on the earth. We've never had this this amount of human lives on the earth. So you have to have a lot of a, a, a quality of energy that allows you to process industrial steel, concrete, other things that, that support that amount of life. Um, so if you go for things that are seen as sustainable, acceptable green technologies, the way that people like Mark Carney or other um, architects or members of the Great Reset crowd uh, would like you the quality of those energy sources are unfortunately very low they're very unreliable you know wind doesn't blow much of the time uh, solar panels are they don't work you know if there's if you have a sustained period of no sun um the the quality of the energy will not let you even make a solar panel with solar panel energy in terms of thinking about the amount of rare earths and mining and other things that are required to build each thing which is very destructive to the environment which we don't we're not supposed to look at so these are the sorts of, of energy policies that you have coming in online um, as part of this, you know, um, this program for Europe as well as North America. With Russia, we are instead seeing not only has Russia increased compared to last year their amount of uh, natural gas and oil exports to Europe, which it supplies 40%. You know, it's a huge amount. They've increased it by a factor of about 10%. Um, but not only that, they've offered to even increase it more, but inc- now what we've seen is, you know, in, in the context of the sanctions and other things, w- which are completely predictable, the, you know, Russia has had $300 uh, billion dollars, uh, that have been frozen, um, stolen by the West. This is foreseeable. 
and many of its of its companies, uh, major leading enterprises have been sanctioned. Um, they have said that, no, as of the end of this month, you will be allowed to continue to buy Russian gas. It's not like they've said that you have to con- you know, stop buying gas or we're going to not provide it to you. They've just said it'll be in Russian rubles that you will have mm. to settle this. Now, them announcing that has been a, very important. Um, I think it's it's a, a complete stroke of genius, even though Europe has said, no, we won't do it, or at least the German uh, Schultz has said, we won't do it. We will perf- <laughs> we'll rather wear sweaters in winter <laughs> than, <laughs> than suffer the <laughs> suffer to pay you Russian rubles. Um, I think it's going to, that's not sustainable. Um, the population is going to, I believe, uprise, uh, if they, if they know how easy it would be to access cheap, abundant energy. Mm-hmm. Um, China as well. So Russia and China, if you look at their energy policy, in some cases, yes, they, they do have a, like a lot of investment in windmills and solar panels that are in alignment with the COP26 great reset way of thinking about energy, but they're not hinging their economies on these sources alone it's actually there these are purely being used mostly for residential areas because it's it's fine to have these things for having you know your residential part of your your energy basket maintained um you know your television sets your your basic what you need at home it's very different from the quality of energy that's used by the industrial base of your economy the that's a very different type that's insufficient windmills or, or, or solar panels cannot maintain your industrial part of your your energy basket so for that, Russia and China are the leading investors of the world in nuclear power, second, third generation. They've got massive investments into fusion power. Um, China has increased their production of uh, coal plants, natural gas. So has Russia with a vast program uh, where they've pulled, I mean, over China alone has pulled over 800 million people out of poverty with no end in sight. So it's a very different um, idea of how what what energy is going to be utilized for yourself, but also for other countries doing business with you. Russia has had uh, meetings. The Russian head of uh, Roscosm uh, of uh, the the nuclear energy company of Russia. Um, uh, I'm just forgetting the name all of a sudden. But Russia has had meetings with nearly every single leader of an African country. And has made it very clear that they want to help Africa develop nuclear technology, uh, nuclear energy. With that comes an entire upshift in the quality of your educational sector because you have to have a very high quality um, culture that can produce nuclear scientists, nuclear engineers. This is something which not only gives the individual African nations, I think right now uh, Egypt is building uh, four or is it eight uh, Russian-made nuclear power plants with the help of Russia. Um there's many other countries that are very close to adopting similar policies. Of course, the Western oligarchs who have a lot of influence in many of the sub-Saharan African countries are putting pressure on them to stay aligned with the World Bank IMF system of, you know, appropriate technologies where you stay poor and stay better exploited. And, and that way uh, you stay, you, you're considered well-behaved and we won't conduct a regime change on you. Um, but despite that, we could just see a, a completely different way of thinking. And I think there's a lot of evidence that points that, to the fact that Russia does not want itself to be depopulated um, or its neighbors or countries in Africa or, or other nations who they would like to assist in, you know, reindustrializing, helping them stand on their own two feet. China, too. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. And I think um, we were talking about this just before um, I started recording that in a lot of this discourse that I'm seeing, um, which is sort of putting, you know, envisaging this entire unified transnational corporatocracy cabal. Um, what is being ignored are the 4.5 billion population countries that have so far mm-hmm. refused to put sanctions on uh, Russia. And that, of course, includes India, it includes uh, Pakistan, and India, of course, just rejected a a UK trade delegation um, because as part of their agenda, they wanted to discuss, obviously, the pivot away from Russia. Um, Pakistan, India, China, Iran, um, many of the Middle Eastern countries, uh, many of the Central African Republic countries, Latin American countries, etc., that are refusing 
to impose sanctions on Russia. In other words, they are passively refusing to go along with um, the, the US-allied agenda um, against Russia, which, of course, has been, as you said, in the pipeline for, for a very, very long time. This isn't something that, that was planned yesterday. If you go back to Brzezinski's um, The Great Chessboard, etc., the balkanization of Russia, the decoupling of Russia from uh, particularly Germany, but also from the rest of the EU um, and the balkanization, um, mm -hmm. you know, which is a major part, of course, as we've seen um, in former Yugoslavia, in Iraq, um, they tried or they are still trying to do it in Syria. But what is your view? I mean, for these countries, these countries like Syria, where I am, you know, where we've honestly been living the Great Reset <laughs> for the last 11 years, you know, we don't have electricity. We wish we could pay more for it. <laughs> that, that would be, you know, that would be marvelous if we could actually have electricity, even if we had to pay more for it. Um, we don't have gas. We don't have fuel. For a number of reasons, but many of them down to the economic sanctions and, of course, the U.S. occupation of Syrian resources and the destruction of uh, Syrian agriculture and um, foodstuffs like wheat, which then has made us dependent, of course, on on Russia, effectively. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, in in my view, that's part of the reason for attempting this blockade of Russia on the western flank was also to to um, impact on Syria itself, because if we go back to um, it was Wesley Clark, I believe, in 2014, who mentioned the fact that, you know, they, America wanted to get rid of what they described as these Soviet Union surrogate states in the Middle East. And, of course, Syria was, was the ultimate prize in, in that um, yes. collection of countries. And, of course, it's failed <laughs> mm -hmm. um, pretty dismally because Russia intervened militarily at the behest of the Syrian government in 2015. So sorry, that, that's a very long-winded question, but what, I, what I'm worried about is that this discourse is becoming very Western-centric, and it's not taking into account these countries that have effectively suffered the Great Reset, as I said, but they have suffered from US and UK-led imperialism for, in the case of Palestine, for example, for over a century. Um, yes. and And... What, in your view, will be the benefit for these countries if Russia succeeds um, in Ukraine, succeeds in rendering Ukraine um, a neutral buffer zone between Russia and, and NATO, demilitarizes uh, Ukraine um, and denazifies Ukraine, and changes the power balance globally? effectively, because that's also what this war is about, in my opinion. How will that impact positively onto these countries that are kind of, I see them as waiting in the wings to see what's going to happen? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that it's a, it's a really great thought experiment. And, you know, many of these countries that you've mentioned were already targeted by Henry Kissinger in his infamous uh, NSSM 200 memo. Uh, which is more than a memo. It was really a 1974 uh, program, a blueprint that completely reorganized America's foreign policy from being a, a policy which had tended at better times to be driven by the idea of helping poorer nations access high technology, new science. Um, this is what you know, uh, the Adams for Peace of Eisenhower was sort of driven by or Kennedy's outlook towards helping Africa develop nuclear, uh, sorry, uh, hydroelectric power with Ghana as the uh, the spearhead of that. And that was all abandoned. And Kissinger's NSSM 200 made the point that, no, we have to instead focus on population reduction in these countries that are, uh, that all want to get on with a, um, a Japan style economic model and pull their people out of poverty. That might sound good, he said, but in reality, that's going to contribute to overpopulation far too much. And instead, U.S. foreign policy must be geared towards withholding food in exchange or as a threat if these countries don't abide by uh, different IMF or other conditions that we demand upon them. And he laid out uh, 14 countries of which, you know, Mexico, Pakistan, 
India, Iran, were all on the list. Egypt, Ethiopia were on the list as well. I believe China was firmly in his mind, uh, as well as uh, Russia, frankly. Um, although they wouldn't say that at that at that point in 1974. This was declassified mm-hmm. in 1989, by the way, and people can read this atrocious report. Mm-hmm. What I believe that the um, the so-called elite wish is to go back in time um, to the period where that was still possible to to you know go back to the 1980s in in the sense of um, go back to the way China was more beholden to the Western financial interests after Kissinger went in um, and made certain arrangements so that they would apply a sort of one-child policy. They would keep their society based upon, you know, poor sweatshops. Um, they want to literally, I mean, with the idea of a great reset isn't just economic, it's cultural too. They want to reset or th- that means turn off and on like basically erase um, the hard drive as they think of it. They think of human beings as a computer system in a, in a sense. Uh, erase the hard drive memory of these civilizations that go back thousands of years. Syria, Iran, the ancient Persian civilization, ancient Palmyra, I mean, of Syria. Um, China goes back 5,000 years or more. I mean, India, it's an ancient civilization. They want to literally cut all of that off and literally just bring a new type of humankind online that is made in the image of these technocrats. Um, up until now, these smaller countries have been forced to submit in many ways and suffer um, from this because every time that you've had a national patriot who has achieved political power, whether it's been in Syria or occasionally in India or Mexico or Pakistan, they've often been, since the 1970s, relatively isolated. They haven't had a coalition of other nations to stand together and say together, no, we're going to fight together in a coordinated fashion. And because of that, people like Lopez uh, Portillo, the president of Mexico, was picked off very quickly um, in 83. And and since then, Mexico has been um, punished for four decades for its for Portillo's defiance. Uh, you know, when he threatened to to the the international financiers at the United Nations in 1982, saying we cannot and thus will not pay these illegitimate debts. We are instead going to reorganize our debts. He thought he was going to be standing with the presidents of Brazil and Argentina and, and other South American countries who uh, basically they left him high and dry. They left him hanging and by himself, he couldn't resist. And and Mexico has been punished ever since its currency has been devalued. Criminal enterprises have expanded helped by the West as well. These different narco-terrorist groups uh, have didn't just grow on their own terms. They have a lot of assistance by Wall Street and other intelligence agencies in the West, and this has been documented thoroughly. Um, we've had cases as well of Indira Gandhi at various moments trying to do her part to resist certain threats by the IMF and World Bank and instead push for industrial activity. Her son was doing the same thing. In a very difficult, complex situation, of course, you know, um, mm. and she was, we know what happened to both her and her son, Rajiv. Um, but again, you've never had a coalition of nations strong enough to stand together until now where you, you, you have this Iran, Russia, China coalition of different ancient civilizations. Iran has been the most recent to sort of come on board officially with its $400 billion, uh, 25 year agreement with China and a similar parallel agreement with Russia on security, energy, other economic ties, um, as part of this new multipolar system. And with that, I think we now have a sphere of influence, which has given a lot of these smaller countries for the first time, the confidence to, to, um, to resist, to say, mm-hmm. okay, well, maybe we won't be picked off like a Gaddafi. Gaddafi didn't have a Russia, China, Iran alliance in 2011 when he was killed. Um, Bashar al-Assad almost was, we almost, he came very close, but Mm -hmm. uh, Russia swept in uh, to prevent the Qaddafi treatment um, in Syria's case. And since then, there's been increasingly bold and and amazing discussions that I'm seeing from the Chinese intelligentsia and others about Syrian reconstruction, the extension of rail lines from Iran into Iraq and through Iraq into Syria and thus into Lebanon and beyond as far as a driver for real reconstruction stretching the southern route of the, B, of the BRI um, into Southwest Asia and maybe even into Africa. Many African countries like Ethiopia are very, uh, they're very excited about this. So to say that, you know, everybody is just 
this is all part of the blueprint, all part of the great game script of the the Davos crowd. I think just creates a lot of contradictions if you if you hold to that. There's there's a better, I think, more elegant, truthful explanation of why these countries are uh, so. Uh, excited about the possibility that a new viable economic order is being brought online for the first time that has a different operating system. You have a lot of the same tools, you know, um, things like, you know, terminologies like the, the fourth industrial revolution. We see those, those terms used by the leaders of Russia, of China, and it confuses people who see that, oh, that's a great reset terminology. That's thus bad. And it's like, no, that, that term actually goes back to the 1960s. Um, it simply refers to the idea that human society, as we move into the nuclear, uh, the, the computing, the, the age of computers, quantum computers, there is a new upshift in how human beings utilize technology for a certain economic effect. Um, and increasingly, you know, repetitive types of jobs. Mm. We know that through automation, you can liberate people from who do the sorts of menial, mindless tasks with which a computer could do. There are certain things that involve 3D printing, which is very useful as a technology. Or, uh, you know, like another example would be um, machine learning. Like, sort of, there's certain types. Machines are not creative. They're still limited to the input of a programmer. They can't break their own program, but they they are capable of. Um, of learning based upon experiences that um, that they can adapt to. They're adaptive. That's useful in med- medicine. It's useful in mining, in space technology, and a variety of things. So when you hear the terms used fourth industrial revolution from China or Russia, and you look at how those technologies are being deployed there, and you contrast them to how people like Klaus Schwab is thinking about the same terminology, the same words, and how they're being used under what design in his um, ivory tower view of how humanity should be organized. It's two very different effects. And I think that's why uh, many of the countries, again, like you mentioned it, Pakistan, Mexico, many South American countries, Iran and others, um, they would rather that other uh, paradigm, which is, which actually sees human beings as something important and of intrinsic value instead of the one that sees human beings like a parasite. Uh, to be maybe eliminated on behalf of, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's on one, that's one way of addressing it. There's so many ways I could tackle that, that question. But that's one way <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I, I think what's great about, you know, your writing and your discourse is it does give, um, it gives hope that although there may still be a global power paradigm, um, it may, um, eventually have a more positive effect and a more if we talk about the existential war that uh, Russia is fighting right now and and Putin um, referred to this in his speech at Valdai five years ago when he spoke about the um, I call it the debauchery in the West Mm. Um, you know the loss of the moral vacuum really that, that now is the West compared to the relative conservatism, um, the further East you go, and particularly in Russia. You know, and I think this is another important point that people forget when they're lumping these national cultures, histories, heritages together. Um, it, it, it ignores that the intrinsic national identity, which is not going to, as you said, going to be erased by, by, by the Great Reset. You know, this is not something that you can just sort of deprogram from people. Um, and you've covered this in, in a wonderful article that I, I thoroughly recommend people to read, um, Humanity at a Crossroads, Cooperation or Extinction. And um, I really love the principles that you lay out in here, but I just want to read one particular paragraph. Um, you talk about the Kennedy's promotion of the USA-Russian scientific cooperation on space development and atomic development. And you're, what you're basically proffering is that, you know, why are we fighting, really, simplistically speaking? You know, why aren't we working together as, as nation states towards 
the good of mankind. Okay, that's a very simplistic view in, in the world that we're living in right now. Um, but for example, you mentioned the Chinese have recently offered the transatlantic community the chance to work together on the Belt and Road Initiative, and you've mentioned that there's a large number of countries that are now involved, in it, including um, Syria, of course. And you go on to say, what makes these positive steps towards a sustainable global security, there's that word, sustainable <laughs> security doctrine, so attractive, is that they involve reorienting nuclear silence, sorry, science from the perverse path of self-destruction towards the path of creation, which this beautiful field of research was always destined to be. The peaceful use of atomic power, both in advanced fission reactors, atomic medicine, and the long overdue holy grail of fusion energy provides humanity the master key to do what no other species has been able to do, break an extinction cycle, and end the four horsemen of famines, war, disease, and ignorance that have plagued humanity since time immemorial. Do you really think this is possible. Do you think what is going on now <laughs> is this huge transformational shift? And yes, I really want you to be positive on this time. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think, yeah, a lot of people would would smirk or grimace at that. Yeah, sure. There's been, you know, I think we've all seen a lot and lived live through a lot of injustice in mm-hmm. a very hypocritical uh, world. I was, you know, you and I were born into a world that was already pretty, pretty far gone on the path of, of crazy. Um, (laughs) and so I think we've become naturally jaded. And I think that a lot of the cultural, um, environment, the fertile, I mean, the the soil of, of a plant is one thing, right? Where you put a seed in and the plant grows or it doesn't grow based upon the fertility of the soil, uh, for the soul of human beings. I think that's the culture. That's the spiritual field that we're born into that gives vitality to our, our ability to blossom and, and, and mature, like our bodies will always mature, but the question is not necessarily the case that our minds or emotional connection will also achieve maturity. That, that may stagnate or be held back, you know, in, in infantile materialist egos, which we see a little bit too much of, um, uh, in, in modern society. So I, I think there's a lot of reinforcement of negativity in film, in uh, shows and things like that. But I think when you look philosophically, you take a step back and you look at the human species as, as a one, as, as a, as a product of something that we don't fully understand, right? That came about in a, in a deeper process of, uh, creative evolution within this part of our galaxy, you know, one star of, of billions of stars in the Milky Way. We happen to have, uh, the conditions were right. And in the past, they say 500 billion, uh, million years, we, w- we went from, from evidence of just simple celled amoeba life, <laughs> um, to all of a sudden, 500 million years later, you and I having this conversation over electricity, right? Um, in real time at light speed, where we're just talking, our bodies are moving according to concepts and we understand each other. So. I'm told by some that this is all the effect of random chance <laughs> and uh okay sure uh you could you could believe that but I think it's pretty it's much more likely that there is a certain directionality a design a purpose built into the fabric of space time and that we exhibit these qualities of self-reflection discovery application free will we have all of these things that we can access and use to to govern and navigate our our own development uh, both as individuals, but also as a species, right? So when I look at other animals, they're beholden to the, the rules of nature that's embedded in their, in their genes, in their environment that they just, they don't have the free will to, to not, to, to do other than be what they are. A bee can only be a bee, right? It can only pollinate. It can't all of a sudden choose to be like, okay, today I want to, I want to be a, a cat or something or a butterfly. It's like, no, you just can't do that. You're a bee, pollinate. Um, so human beings can choose to be other than what we are, right? We can, we can, uh, choose to live in folly, live for selfishness, destroy our children's ability to have a future by maybe, you know, just gambling away their, their, uh, existence. So we can, we can create laws, we can improve upon our laws, we can change bad laws into good laws, or we can live and adapt and just, uh, allow bad laws, bad, and this also includes economic laws to just, uh, dominate us to the point that we self-destruct and occasionally you have societies that don't change from folly and and they suffer the consequences 
which is a dark age. You know, populations will collapse. We have that in, in Europe in the, in the 15th century or the 14th century little dark age. Um, there's other, other examples of that even in India or Chinese cultures and their history. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think when I look at today, we're, a, we've just entered, uh, like a couple of generations ago at the turn of the 19th century, we, we just, just entered the nuclear age. We never had access to an understanding that there was this relationship between matter and energy on the, the micro level, which by understanding by penetrating our understanding ever more deeply into that domain that geometry of of atoms we could create machines structures that would allow us to to release a lot of energy where we thought there was none uranium used to be used in you know the the 17th century purely for dyeing glass stained glass yellow Mm -hmm. nobody realized that this had an ability to you know (laughs) <laughs> boil water, move turbines uh, immensely, you know, and, and mm. one little gram of thorium, um, like one little, I, I, one pound of thorium, I'm sorry, contains enough energy to sustain the needs of somebody living in an industrial nation for approximately 90 years. It's worth maybe $60. Just think about the magnitude of that. And if you go into fusion power where all of a sudden helium three and, and, and hydrogen or deuterium become what we, we use in, as, as energy, these things have very low, low value today. But if we, you, if we make the correct discoveries as China and Russia are, are, are moving towards, they are absolutely intent on doing that. That's why China has landed its, um, its rover on the far side of the moon, which is abundant in helium three. There's, there's hundreds of millions, if not billions of tons of helium three on the far side of the moon. There's zero on earth, hardly zero. Um, they're, they're the, the heads of the Chinese space program have spoken openly about the need to, to access this and start utilizing this as a fuel source where one truckload will be enough to sustain global population levels at high standards of life, 8 billion people for a year, one truckload. There's millions of truckloads worth there. Uh, Russia and China have co-signed an agreement to have a fully functional space research center on the moon by 2030 that is in the works it's already moving so this is all happening while the west is shutting down our ability to we i mean they they canceled apollo in 1973 they 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 retired all of their saturn rockets and everything put them in museums we couldn't put a, a toaster on the moon if we wanted to because the intention of these malthusians has been to cut us off of all of the cutting edge breakthroughs we could have been making in order to keep us addicted to controlled finite uh, resources like oil, Mm. petroleum, which is what Kissinger orchestrated in 1973 with the petrodollar, right? Um, Mm. And to keep us in these little finite cages that could then be induced to to shrink and shrink and shrink according to the whimsy of uh, a technocratic priesthood. (laughs) So I think, yeah, if we're morally fit to survive, if we're not a mistake... If I if I operate on the the assumption that human beings <laughs> were not a mistake, <laughs> then I pass. It I hope to not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it might be, but I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, could be, but. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh. If, so then, it, what what you just cited from the the paper that I wrote on humanity and a crossroads, it it has to come to pass that we we become a mature species. Uh, that that is our design, or th- that is what would make us actually sustainably happy. Because right now the type of happiness we're being given is a form of very ephemeral happiness of what really is just license or hedonism, you know? And, and every time you, you amplify, you create a culture where people just think that that's the cause of happiness, your fleshly, you know, uh, desires and just satisfying those, you create like, yeah, go on. Sorry. more pain in the future because you, you start getting into addictions. Mm. Uh, these are the types of, of materialistic pains that you know, you, you always want more. You need greater hits of whatever it is that you're addicted to, and it's not real sustainable, whereas I think true pleasure is something which is self-feeding. You don't regret having given into a discovery and sharing mm-hmm. a discovery or helping a child make a discovery. I mean, that's a quality of joy that's that's transcendental to the other orders. So I think Russia and China, they have penetrations of deep deep state apparatuses. They have their own fifth columns. They're, de- they're dealing with that. Um but I think overall, they're moving humanity into, when I look at their actions and the general philosophy shaping the words they use, there is a, a, an, an understanding that we have to move humanity into that other, uh, a better paradigm 
which allows us to also deal with things like, you know, the sun is about to release a massive coronal, ma- uh, coronal ejection on Thursday. Mm-hmm. They, they're, I mean, NASA, everybody's ringing the alarm bells. Like this is going to be a dead on hit onto the earth. Um, the last time we saw a little tiny dead on hit from a tiny coronal mass ejection of a similar magnitude was in 1989 when the Quebec, which, which is the province in Canada where I live, our electricity grids were all shut down. This could, I mean, that was a small one. This is going to be even a bigger magnitude. You know, this is, mm. the sun does these things periodically. Um, we had a big one in, uh, the Carrington event in the 1860s, which involved Aurora Borealis all the way down to Hawaii. People could read newspapers in the middle of the night. You know, it was like that bright. And, uh, and we didn't have an electricity based society back then. So it wasn't that big. I mean, horses just freaked out. Whereas today, you can only imagine where a whole society is so reliant on electricity, uh, that could really do a lot. Billions of people could die by this sort of thing. So unless we're working together on these sorts of big macro issues, which I think the universe is throwing a lot of big issues, asteroids are occasionally thrown at the Earth. That's in everybody's interest to work together on, you know, uh, mm-hmm. coronal mass ejections, the the uh, the oncoming new ice age, since we are on the verge of, of, of plummeting into a new ice age. This is something that does put it transcends national interest but puts us all in the same um place as human beings with common interests um and it can only be resolved or solved by activating creative discoveries you you have to utilize the powers of each individual who could anybody could be a new einstein it could come from a a poor child in ethiopia if they're given the right environment right they could be the one to make the discovery of what is needed to overcome one of these great problems so yeah i think you just have to have that in the mind. Mm. Um, I, I th- we've kind of. Uh, I, I'd like to finish there actually because that's kind of on a on a high note, and I think it's given people um, a lot of food for thought. Matt, I'd love to have you back on to talk about m- perhaps in more detail um, the fifth column that uh, President Putin uh, spoke about very recently. I think on the fifteenth of March. Um, and he he spoke about the kind of rooting out of the fifth column, um, mm. and and actually went on the attack. I mean, I think I think also what's what's important. People talk about the agreement um, on Agenda 2030, etc., by China and Russia back in February before uh, the military operation began. But when you look at the rhetoric from Putin and from his his closest. Um, advisors and consultants it's it's changed very much i think since um the the military operation began and mm-hmm. we're seeing them pulling further and further away from the elements of the great reset that that are probably the most damaging for for humankind um, oh my god yes you yeah. know um so i would love to to kind of be a bit more incisive about that um, if you're up for speaking again. But I'd, I'd like to leave people with what you've said because I think, um, you know, it's sort of your view is so fascinating and it's so expansive and it takes in so much history and, and context. Um, even for me, I think it's going to take a little time to absorb everything you've said tonight. And I'm really grateful to you for taking the time to come on. Um, and, and really the way that you're perceiving it, if I understand it correctly, is the, the change in the global power paradigm will lead us towards evolution as humanity and away from, uh, is it devolution? That's the opposite of evolution. Um, that, that yeah. the West is enforcing on us effectively, right? Yeah, I think that, uh, first of all, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And, and yeah, I, I would be more than happy to really sit down and unpack a little bit of the fifth mm. columns in Russia and in China um, that their patriots have been doing battle with now for a long time. We, it's true, we didn't really even talk about that. <laughs> no. Uh, most certainly, yeah, we could just sit down and, and really, really unpack that at, at your at your leisure and uh, let me know mm. whenever you're able to. And, and your insight, yeah, I think that that terminology, de-evolution versus evolution, is good and um yeah i think when you when you look at the the oligarchical system just a, a little observation mm. when you look at the behavior of the oligarchical class which 
goes back. I mean, we, we see traces of this all the way into ancient records um, of a society ruled by hereditary power structures who believe that they that morality, uh, justice has no real existence except that it is a useful tool for social control for the, the dumb plebs. Um, whereas the wise man, right, the truly wise, if you think about Plato's um, dialogue of uh, the Gorgias, there's a character named Callicles. Um, who maintains this this very Nietzschean thesis that no the the true philosopher the true wise man is somebody who knows that there is no such thing as morality he has overcome it and he is now in a position where he uh, utilizes his will to satisfy his pleasure punish his enemies and reward his friends or his allies um, that's all that is true right um, your your will to power and and Plato well through the the voice of Socrates just dismantles this reasonably it's it's gorgeous dialogue and I think that's that probably pissed Nietzsche off uh, 2,000 <laughs> years later <laughs> that his entire worldview was like undermined 2,000 years earlier. Um, so these guys, the, the oligarchical character has, has a lot in common with, with like dinosaurs. Um, they're very adaptive. They're really good at um, organizing themselves in such a way that it benefits uh, a small grouping of criminals at the top, certain hereditary families who are, you know, uh, they, they have an agreement of their common self-interest and believe that they're divinely ordained by whatever genetic or other uh, attributes or their blood to be the masters while the majority are born to be slaves. And that's just the, the, the uh, crystallized social order that they believe to be embedded as natural law. And that anything which disrupts or disproves that is thus out of nature and must be destroyed. The problem is the thing that disrupts that is the fact that children who are born from poor families will often be uh, exhibit genius qualities. Like, you know, there's many examples where people uh, look at Ben Franklin or, or many others. Percy Shelley will will make discoveries that uh, that the oligarchy themselves could not make. So they're good at adapting and maybe mm -hmm. crushing as much as possible uh, creativity which they see as being a threat. They sort of smell it as a threat. Um, but they can't create themselves anything new. They can co-opt discoveries that are made by creative people, and they can use it. I don't think uh, Queen Elizabeth or, or other oligarchs um, <laughs> would be happy living without running water or electricity, but I don't think that there is anything within their own species character that could have ever created those discoveries or applied them. So they can steal, but they can't create. Um and I think because of that, just like the dinosaurs, I mean, I don't want to call the dinosaurs evil. They weren't. They were just they had small little, you know, peanut sized brains. But they were they were hyper adapted to the type of environment and ecosystems that they lived in. And they were the king. They were at the top of the, the pyramid, um, at least the, the the big, scary dinosaurs that we see. in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but when, when something like an asteroid were to strike or an ice age were to strike, there was nothing that they could do but submit to extinction um human beings are the first species that exhibit a character where we could possibly break an extinction cycle no other species has done that um so the question now is just you know i think whether we act more like humans or more like dinosaurs whether we devolve or evolve <laughs> that way <laughs> yeah. yeah breaking the extinction Cycle. Yeah, and if you have like two billion people on the earth, like let's say, mm. let's say you know uh, they get their way, let's say the oligarchy gets their way and they achieve a global population reduction uh, to one or one billion or five hundred million people, whatever their computer models uh, say, you know, whatever. Let's say they get that. Okay, now you got five hundred million dumbed down people uh, living mostly in poverty, uh, with a few maybe upper level managers who are hedonistic. Um, nobody has access. Uh, population B to sustaining themselves. You know, they, 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 they've lost their own discoveries, their own means of making or improving upon themselves. So uh, they will go extinct, guaranteed, if uh, any natural disaster were to strike, which, which it will happen, guaranteed. Mm. Um, they won't, they have no ability to, to exist. Um, they, it's a suicide uh, ideology. So um, yeah, that, that gives me a bit of empowerment when i think philosophically on those terms because mm. they can only make mediocrity right as soon as they get what they want they create a situation of total mediocrity look at joe biden or or justin trudeau i mean how mediocre are the, these characters in the european union uh my god like these are these are the the best you could find to be the managers 
of yeah, your yeah. of your system dear god <laughs> yeah no i mean the 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 leadership cast is definitely devolving at the rate of knots that's for sure and if you look at their creations like the house of saud that i mean literally just sit there like you know fat kingpins uh, leeching off all of the neighboring countries and any of the yeah. countries that, that they're being used as mercenaries to target yeah you know that's yeah. what they that's what they create or the state yeah, of the, 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 the non-state of Israel, you know, built right. on, on, on genocide of the Palestinians. Um, so yeah, you know, just as America really was, was built as a settler state on the genocide of the uh, indigenous tribes. So yeah, you're absolutely right. They're, they're, um, um, yeah, we need to definitely, um, evolve away from that and, and not allow ourselves to, to be caught into that prism, into that uh, optic and paradigm, because therein lies a, a, a death of the soul, for sure. Amen. Yeah. Matt, thank you. That kind of went off in, in all sorts of directions that I kind of wasn't expecting, but I, it was brilliant. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, but if, if you're free, um, next week, let's try and set up a date and get more, uh, into depth into the whole fifth column. And I'd be really interested in, in hearing about that in regards to China, actually, because that's not, China is really an area where I'm not super informed and I'd love to, to get your perspective. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's do that. Where can people find your work? I mentioned a couple of sites at the beginning, but if you can um, just reiterate. Most certainly, yeah. They can buy the uh, the books on The Clash of the Two Americas or The Untold History of Canada, which I've co-authored with my wife, Cynthia Chung. Um, she's also an, an author at Strategic Culture Foundation, where, where I publish. Um, they can buy those on CanadianPatriot.org, org, or they can go to our, uh, our website, RisingTideFoundation.net, NET. Uh, you know, we've got Substack pages and other things too, but those are the, the two best. Oh, I've just created a, a Telegram channel. Um, it's an experiment. Uh, they can find that <laughs> at t.me backslash Canadian Patriot Press. I'm trying to build an audience there, so if people want to follow that, they can they can try that out. I joined tonight actually because I picked up on it on on. Um... I can't remember one of your articles. I think maybe the Screepole one that I was reading. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. All right. Matt, the thank you. Telegram channel, by the way, is excellent, I would just say. It's, it's oh, fantastic. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's not been going long, but I'm actually far preferring it to, to the rest of the kind of NATO, NATO tube and NATO <laughs> Twitter and <laughs> NATO book. <laughs> so, so it's kind of I'm I'm sort of getting more into Telegram now and, and shifting away from, from all of those NATO satellite social media. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, five eyes book. Yeah. yeah. All right, Matt. Thank you so much and, and have a good day, I guess. Um all right. and speak to you very, very soon. All right, have a good night. Bye. Bye.